in retrospect, this cat probably had chronic pancreatitis and probably had some sort of chronic enteropathy, undetermined, and but he was having an acute, I think the pancreatitis caused him to be hyperglycemic. Yeah. And so he was diabetic for about a year, but that whole crisis happened. Yeah. And I, of course, was out of town. So when the cat got sent home from ICU, they had the cat on TID antibiotics. I was like, wait a minute, do you forget where I work? When, when <laughs> yeah. do you think I'm going to be home to give that third? You know, I'm going to give one at 8 p.m. and one at 10 Three. p.m. Yeah. Because, <laughs> that's how I can do it, guys. Sorry for saying Sorry Media presents the Purr Podcast, the best podcast for feline medicine and surgery with tips, tricks, and updates for the entire veterinary healthcare team. If you're dying to know more about cats, keep on listening. Here are your hosts, Dr. Susan Little, famous cat vet and textbook author, and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein, talented surgeon and social media geek. Hello, this is Dr. Yola Kirpenstein. And I'm Dr. Susan Little. And this is number two of our wonderful podcast with... Anne Hohenhaus from the Animal Medical Center in New York City. Thanks for coming back. And uh, we're very excited to be talking once again about cats, senior cats, cats with tumors, and lots of other good topics. Yeah. We're not in New York City, though. No. No, we're in Japan. We're still in Japan. Yes. (laughs) And I just want you to know that in Japan, they have these giant gumball machines, except they don't have gumballs in them. They have this plastic ball, and I bought two cat hats, 300 yen a piece. I got a platypus hat (laughs) and a Hello Kitty beret with a red bow on it. Oh, you are my hero. Okay, where where do we find these? Where do we find Uh, these? It's it's on the street on the way to the Sensoji Temple. And there I was feeding yen coins into the thing and pushing buttons so that I could get my cat hats. Which cat is going to... No, wait, 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 wait. The cat wears the hat? The cat wears the hat. Oh, my. They're we cat want hats. pictures. <laughs> we, we I think we need pictures. Yeah, we need pictures. <laughs> yes, that's awesome. So that's you have a awesome. cat who's going to wear the hat? Well, I don't have any cats because, unfortunately, I have a child who's allergic to cats. However, I used to have a cat that would wear a Mickey Mouse hat. It was pink and had ears and a little elastic <laughs> strap under its chin. And when you put the cat, the hat on the cat, the cat immediately acted like it had tick paralysis and it couldn't move. Oh, the poor uh, cat. It was a paralyzed cat. It, it reacted cat similarly by to wearing, um, if you put a harness and leash on it, it was instantly yes. paralyzed. Oh, that cat just... would have done anything for chicken, but if you had that the harness on it, you could have put an entire rose chicken two feet away from it and it wouldn't have moved. <laughs> yeah. It would not have moved towards it. So we, awesome. we don't want to advocate making cats uncomfortable because no. of cats. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's so funny. But, you know, I will say that um, Frank, who is my cat and our, our CEO, um, has modeled many uh, costumes. <laughs> Shall we? <Yeah. laughs> okay. I will, I will admit. It's confession and, time right and, now. And he has a very nice uh, tie. He wears yes. a very nice tie. Yes. Yes. My cat used to have a black bow tie that it would wear. Because the main coon was a big black and white fluffy uh, thing. And he looked good in a bow tie. That's awesome. Um, but the Abyssinian is the one who would wear the pink Mickey Mouse hat. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. be paralyzed. And be paralyzed. Awesome. Oh, she hated the, the frowny face that that cat would make. She hated wearing the Mickey Mouse hat. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Thank you. Uh, every now and then I post her, the picture of her on Halloween. <laughs> it's a classic. It's a Perfect. Classic. It's a so classic. I had this beloved, big, hairy 
clumsy Maine Coon cat, and he was really big, and he had the wimpiest little meow in the world, and he was a great cat. And I was away, and I called home to check, and nobody answered. I was like, this is kind of funny, because no one's answering the phone at midnight at home, and why is no one answering mm. the phone? So the next day, I finally got somebody on the phone and said, hey, you know, where were you last night, and how are my cats? And the answer I got was, some of them are fine. I'm like, what do you mean some of them are fine? It's not a good answer. The husband came home from work and found a flat cat with piles of cat puke everywhere. And this was a long time ago. And so in retrospect, this cat probably had chronic pancreatitis and probably had some sort of chronic enteropathy undetermined. And but he was having an acute, I think the pancreatitis caused him to be hyperglycemic. Mm-hmm. And so he was diabetic for about a year, but that whole crisis happened. Mm-hmm. And I, of course, was out of town. So when the cat got sent home from ICU, they had the cat on TID antibiotics. I was like, wait a minute, do you forget where I work? When, when <laughs> yeah. do you think I'm going to be home to give that third? You know, I'm going to give one at 8 p.m. and one at 10 p.m. Yeah. Because <laughs> that's how I can do it, guys. Yeah. And that you were so right that completely changed the way that i managed cats because i said i can't do this and i'm trained mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. how can i ask clients who love their cats and aren't trained in cats yep. uh, to do this it, it's insane yep. so it, it's i was like not given antibiotics like trust me because <laughs> yeah. the other thing is antibiotics in cats you know, you're just showing that pill bottle and they're like, whoa, upset tummy, I don't want to eat. You know, I'm going to go lay under the bed for a while because I'm queasy. So you have to be very careful. There's also a risk here though because I I was on one of the Facebook pages. I do a lot of social media. It was one of the Facebook pages and there was a discussion about people saying, oh, I'm using the long-acting antibiotics because it's so easy for the cat. Mm. And then the question was, does it work? And they said, oh, we don't know, but we just give it to them because, you know, it's one of those things that really drives me nuts. I had to random residents in and they were like, let's give that long-acting antibiotic injection. I said, okay, what do you think the likely agent causing this infection is? And they gave me an answer and I said, now, what's the spectrum of activity of that antibiotic? Oh, well, we don't know. I said, I would Google antibiotic <laughs> prescribing instructions. And yeah. just you need to go read those. And they were like, okay, we won't give it. Because yeah. it doesn't, it's good for what it's good for. Mm. And it's not good for a lot of things that we need it to be good. Mm. We, we are fantasizing that it would be good for. Um, yes. You know, more yes. drugs like that would be great. Yeah. Mm. It, it's, a, it's a move in the right direction. Because we certainly need to facilitate getting good drugs into cats. Um, and making it easier for owners. But I also think it's incumbent upon us as, as veterinarians not to over-prescribe, to take into account. You know, so, uh, and uh, you may see this with, with, let's say, a complex diabetic patient. I might not manage the two similar patients the same way because this owner may only be able to do these many things and the right. cat may only tolerate these many things and the other owner and the other cat may be different. And even though they look kind of similar, you, you, that's the art of veterinary medicine, really. Well, I think I think the other thing is is to rank the drugs. Mm. To say to the client, okay, right. I have written five prescriptions for you. Now, if the world was perfect, you could have all five. Mm-hmm. But let's look at these. Which is the most important? So, I a like diabetic that. cat, I would say, oh, that insulin is the number one drug. Don't, don't not give that. But you know, the cobalamin in a sick diabetic cat might fall lower on your list at least for now or that would be one that you would give as an injection and say hold off on those pills so it's it's not only 
limit the prescriptions, but put them in rank orders so that the client understands what's the most important and what if the cat and they are having a bad day, what what is the least important drug? I like that. Rank your drugs. Because the, the client awesome. will do that anyway, right? If they're having trouble on a given day with a group of drugs, they're going to make their own decision. Yes, about they will what, take the easiest one first. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which, which may not have anything to do with actually mm-hmm. the what you would, we well, would yeah, suggest. Well, yeah, they're going to be given the B12 pills because the cat <laughs> likes to eat them. Yeah. yeah. That's not, yeah. That, that is probably the least important drug yeah. on the list. My adherence is perfect because it eats all the B12 pills. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I think that's 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 an excellent way, and it also I think helps relieve a little bit of the stress for the client because then they feel that they're not necessarily like it's not a bad thing if I can't get five drugs into my cat. Now I know if there's like two that are really important, I concentrate on the two, and if I get the others, great. Right now we have a compounding pharmacy in New York that provides great service, and if I have five drugs that are all given once a day, they'll take a little capsule uh, and yeah. put all five in there. And I, I don't quite understand how they figure this out, but I just call them up and say, here's what I want to do. Tell me if I can do it. And yeah. they deal with the, the operation to make that happen, but they put them in a little capsule. And then the client just gives one capsule and all five drugs go down or however many fit in in the capsule. Mm-hmm. And so that's another thing is that if you happen to have a really good compounding pharmacy, mm. they can do some clever things like that mm-hmm. for you. And it's they know pens. probably also which drugs you can and cannot mix together because I would not suggest to do this at home because no, no, there's no, a lot no, of no, drugs no. That, that definitely cannot mm-hmm. go together in this way. The other thing is that cat clients will want what they want and you need that compounding pharmacist to tell you that no in fact it can't be made into a transdermal drug everything Uh, will not go through the ear that's a good one (laughs) and you in methimazole works really well one of the few but a lot of these other things are not amenable to that and so once you put it in the ear the tap is all in the ear and then they're like oh and i like this in the ear and that in the ear and of course first of all the cat's ears would be six inches thick with crust <laughs> but also they're just not going to go across the ear yeah and so that you know say just say no if it's if the compounding pharmacist said no mm. and there are there are better and less better compounding pharmacists. Some yeah. who will do whatever you ask and some who will say, doc, that's not the right thing. Yeah, that's very true. It's often distressing to me. I'll see from some compounding pharmacy, you know, these big lists of we can do all of these things in a transdermal gel, but there's like no data at all for right. most of them that it acts. And, and, you know, you, you all know as well as I know that the list of drugs that have been tried and published on transdermal um, that don't work is bigger than the list of oh, yes. drugs yes. that yeah. do. So. And this goes back kind of the circle uh, uh, because we were talking about the fact that uh, in the beginning we were talking about there's not that much data. on because mm. We started this whole podcast because we felt we have a lot of D data, but we don't have a lot of C data. <laughs> and so we need to start talking about this. First, obviously, we need to get more data, but also talk about these topics because a lot of people do things without really having evidence base behind it. Well, I think I think part of it is that a lot, not 100%, but a lot of the research about pets comes out of colleges of veterinary medicine. Mm. And most colleges of veterinary medicine have quite a small cat population yep. because colleges of veterinary medicine tend to be in less urban places. Mm. And so 
you have to do studies collaborating with private practitioners, places like the Animal Medical Center, but a lot of those things, um, a lot of the research is not cat-based because the veterinary schools don't have enough cats to support um, a, a trial of whatever it is that you're wanting to study. Mm -hmm. And they see a, a, a bit of a skewed population too compared to what you know private practices right. or even, even referral practices see, right? Uh, by the time a cat gets to a veterinary school, that's indeed a small, yes. Do you think somewhat that, different that, population. that clinical research in cats is more difficult than in the other species? Um, well, you know, there are a lot of veterinarians who love cats, and then there are some veterinarians who are not into cats at all. Mm. So I think that, that in part, that makes it more difficult. And then the cat, I mean, they're, they're in general smaller than the other species, and so taking blood samples and they're they're not not every cat is as amenable to cooperating as, as the D species is mm -hmm. so I think that it, it is a bit more challenging but I, I don't think that I don't think that's the reason we have less mm. research I think it's because the organizations that mostly do research are not uh, not in places where there's big cat populations yeah. mm -hmm. and, and I also think that I don't think the drug companies who fund a lot of the research have focused on the feline research patient as business, much as they though, have on the other ones. It. It's mean, a it huge is, business. It is a big business. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, it's all. It's only. I mean, I, I've been a veterinarian more than thirty years now, and it's only recently that I can actually say I see some drug companies focusing more on cat. That it's not a parasiticide. Because that's right. Yeah. So it's, and it's not that I don't love good parasiticides, but I do get a little bit of frustration when I see a new parasiticide come out when we could use, you know, so much more in antibiotics. We could use so mm -hmm. much more in pain relief. We could use, yeah. So not, not to say that I don't like the parasiticides, but that, you know, it's been such a big focus. Although we do see new companies coming out with some really novel, this wonderful is it. This is it. ideas. And this is it. Yeah, so we're seeing really some good. companies do some, um, some wonder, finally. Finally, that makes a big difference. So looking at the time, one more topic I would like to discuss. Ooh. And we went from lymphoma to compliance to, to pharmacy yeah. to everything. This wonderful, difficult clients. Or let me rephrase no, it. No, it's not. Not difficult. difficult clients, but clients that are demanding. And I, I, I can imagine that you have some clients that might be a little bit demanding of the area that you're in. Um, and as, as an oncologist, surgical oncologist, I remember that clients are super dedicated, but sometimes it's also difficult to deal with them because, you know, for instance, they cannot let go or... Are you uh, thinking of like end of life things? Yeah, so, so, uh. so, and, 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 and we discussed, you know, when I was with you a couple of months ago, we discussed a couple of clients that you had, I'm like, wow. It, it's not, you know, veterinary medicine is not only about treating the cat. No. It is also about treating the client and all the stuff that you get. The good stuff, because there's a lot of good there. And, and, and you know, 95% of my clients were, you know, to die for. And then you had that 5% that could draw the well, blood under your nails. So here's what I think is really interesting, because I've been a net veterinarian probably as long or longer than Susan has. And that is that that euthanasia has kind of been the end of life option for most clients. Mm -hmm. Occasionally a pet died on its own, but that would have been unexpected. Mm -hmm. And now 
people want a different end of life scenario. Everyone is not as amenable to euthanizing pets as they used to be. And it's, I've had people say to me, well, I wouldn't kill my mother. Why would I euthanize my cat? And it's so, a little different in Holland, eh? So, I, I, yeah. I realize that, but we're, we're in the United States. Or no, yeah. we're in Japan. Yeah. 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 But you practice in the U.S. Yeah, yes. and yeah. so that's a, a big thing. And that has been a hard thing for the residents to wrap their heads around. The residents say, this pet should be euthanized. I said, that's not our decision. That's a client's decision. I've had this conversation with the client. The client doesn't want to euthanize the pet. And I've told her that she and I have discussed it. And she doesn't want to euthanize now. So the next person, she's going to have to bring it up if she wants to euthanize. Because mm. she was very clear to me that she didn't want to. And that's really hard because the residents have enough experience. They see the end is coming. And they think the end, dying is never pretty. Um, and I think that that they see that it could be a little less ugly if the owner chose euthanasia, but that is the owner's choice and not ours. And so it, I, it's a big shift compared to mm. when I started in this business. Yeah. We could do better with palliative care, and we have been. You know, you see more uh, palliative care options. You see veterinarians who really focus on palliative mm-hmm. care. We, we can do better with that. You know, traditionally we haven't really, I don't think, or not in, not in a formal way anyway. Well, I have this cat patient right now, and, and he's hyperthyroid and has pancreatitis and has small cell lymphoma. And his major problem, though, his life-threatening problem is his heart failure right now. Mm-hmm. And this cat's getting his chest tapped by his regular veterinarian every week or two to keep the fluid down because his heart's so bad. And he's got a bad arrhythmia, and he's just, he's a mess. And so, yes, he's losing weight. But I don't know if it's his heart failure or the lymphoma that we're kind of not really treating right now. And the owner gets it that the cat's on his last legs. And we decided that we weren't going to treat the lymphoma anymore because his if he can't breathe, he can't live. Mm. If we can't take the fluid off his chest, mm-hmm. he can't live. Mm-hmm. If I make his white count low with chemo, then he can't get his chest tapped. Mm. And if I make his platelet count low with chemo, mm. he can't get his chest tapped. Mm. And therefore, he can't keep going. So we've decided in thinking through all that, mm. that treating the heart failure is the life-threatening problem. And yes, I'm, I realize I'm ignoring the lymphoma, but that was our palliative care discussion for this cat. Because this cat is on some funky diuretic that cardiology has him on called torsamide. Mm. So it's related to furosemide, but it's like the mega diuretic. Mm. Ooh, potassium just crashes mm. in these cats. Mm. And so he needs this really heavy duty diuretic to manage his fluid. Mm. I can't stop it. And so I'm under treating the lymphoma in order to let him keep going. Mm. And the mm. owner's gonna keep going as long as he's eating, drinking, pooping, peeing. You know, that's perfectly reasonable, and I, I think that's a good way to look at it, a patient like that. It's what will kill you today. Yeah, if right? we stop treating it. If we it. stop treating it, mm. what kills you today? Yeah. And today, and maybe tomorrow. Yes, and, and that's I, what we need to do. I also think you need to explain it really clearly to the owner. Yeah. I mean, the owner doesn't see it probably that way in the beginning. No. Uh, but you need, to, you need to be able to explain that very clearly. But you know what? What owners see walking around their house is not pancreatitis walking around mm. them. They see a cat who can't breathe. Yeah. 
right? Yeah. They, they don't see mm. pancreatitis. They don't see lymphoma. They see he's not eating. They see he's not breathing. They see he's not moving. So when, when we focus our discussion around uh, focusing on those things, especially things, critical things like your dyspneic, yeah, I, I think I think that makes it that easier for them. So what about if clients want to do things that you don't want to do? Does that happen? Well, somebody emailed me. You know, I I've been at the same hospital for over thirty years, mm. so I've seen people with multiple pets because in New York City, our patients don't get beat up by that D species. Our patients don't get hit by cars. Mm. Uh, you know, You're like that farmer's uh, commercial. You've seen it all. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so our cats are really safe, and so they, yeah. they live a really long time. So it's not yeah. unusual for me to see the same client over and over again yeah. with different cats. And so I, I think you get a, a rapport with these clients. So yeah. I've got one client who's incredibly difficult, and money's always a problem. And he emailed me and decided that his cat with an oral squamous cell carcinoma should have metformin. Now, I know that there's some, in, in this whole um, precision medicine thing, we're repurposing drugs. Mm -hmm. And I know that metformin is one of those drugs that's a diabetic drug, but it's been repurposed for other things. And I, I know it's kind of repurposed for cancer, but I don't think we have any data on it. And I'm not really sure that there's good data in cats and blah, blah, blah. And then to add a drug that has to be given orally to a cat with a tumor in its mouth, which it's not going to eat anyway. Why poke pills down these cats? And so I just, in that case, I said, I will not be the veterinarian prescribing metformin for your cat. Mm. If, if you want that, then you need to find a different veterinarian, and that, that's going to be his choice. Mm. You uh, have to, everybody has a line, right? You have to yeah. draw, that's a line. Yeah, mm. and, and you know, oral squamous cell carcinoma is a miserable disease, mm. miserable. And so I don't want to do anything that's going to make this cat's bad quality of life worse. even worse for no, for no good reason. Right, mm. right. Yeah. This has been wonderful. I think we're at the time. Uh, we, oh, uh, it we goes fast. We know it's crazy how yeah. fast this goes. So this was wonderful. We had so much to discuss and we did. Yeah. That's awesome. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Really glad Pleasure you joined us. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here in Japan with us. Mm -hmm. I know. I love being in Japan. <laughs> thank you. Dr. Susan Little is a feline medicine specialist with two cat-only hospitals in Ottawa, Canada. She is best known as an international speaker and as the author and editor of two textbooks, The Cat, Clinical Medicine and Management, and August, Consultations in Feline Internal Medicine. Along with three cats, she also admits to owning two dogs, and you can follow her on social media with the handle at CatPetSusan. Dr. Jurel Kirpenstein is a diplomate of the American and European College of Veterinary Surgeons and a big cat fan. His specialties range from surgical oncology and reconstruction to minimally invasive surgery. He is the author of two textbooks on basic and reconstructive surgery. Did you know he was allergic to cats? Yola works currently at Hills Pet Nutrition. You can follow him on social media with the handle at GVETSX. This episode is made possible by the generous sponsorship of the Take the Pledge Against Struvites in Pets Facebook page. Did you know there are three easy steps to treat bladder stones in cats with lower urinary tract signs? Step one is to take a radiograph 
And if there is a stone present in the bladder, step two is to use the Minnesota Urolith app for iPhone and Android to determine the most likely type of stone. Step three is to treat the cat for at least two to three weeks with an appropriate diet and see if the stone gets smaller. If so, keep feeding that diet until the stone is completely gone on follow-up radiographs. If not, check compliance with the owner and look for alternative treatment options. Join veterinarians worldwide to take the pledge not to remove struvite stones by surgery anymore. The opinions of this podcast are those by Dr. Susan Little and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein. Veterinary medicine is a complex profession, and often there are multiple diagnostic and therapeutic options for different disease processes. If you're a pet owner with questions, please go to your local veterinarian. If you're a veterinary professional, ask your questions on our Instagram page at per podcast. 